I'm grateful to our praise band and for Carrie Baxter in leading us in this time of transition. Just a reminder that next Sunday, Cheryl Gibson, who will be serving Trinity as the interim music of ministry, uh, music minister, will be here and will be leading us in worship. So be praying for Mr. Gibson as he steps into this role and, uh, and support him because that's not an easy thing to do to step into a place and a transition certainly following the footsteps of one Tony Bowman so be prayerful and come ready to worship next week in fact worship is going to be our theme in the month of January so each Sunday in January we're going to be thinking about worship and I want us to begin by looking at Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 so I direct your attention there you can open up your Bibles if you don't have a copy of the scripture with you or on your phone, please make use of one of the Bibles located in the back of the chairs near where you are seated. Uh, and if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take that Bible with you as a gift from Trinity uh, to you to read, to use, and to hear God speak to you. The Lord is continuing to be at work, certainly with Emma and the Herod household. The last few weeks have gone extraordinarily well. We're continuing to see movement in her legs. Therapy sessions have been going very well. So continue to pray for Emma's healing and restoration. When I say that we're seeing movement in her legs, she is, is moving them, uh, rotating her hips some. That wasn't happening three weeks ago. So uh, we're very thankful and it's getting stronger as she does it even on command at times. So Ephesians chapter 3. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, draw our attention to worship. The story is told of a preacher that was standing outside in the church parking lot welcoming people as they arrived to worship. As he was standing out there, a car pulled up. It was clear this car wasn't parking to stay, but was dropping off. And sure enough, the passenger side door opened. Wife steps out. She opens up the back door and their son steps out and she can hear the, he can hear the conversation taking place as they get ready to come into worship and it's very clear that this husband is dropping his wife and son off to go to church and from the way he's, he's dressed the preacher quickly ascertains that well that guy's going to go minister to the Green family that Sunday if you kind of get what I mean he hears the son saying, Dad, why do I have to go to church? The dad says, Son, you need to go because it's good for you. It'll do you good. I went when I was a kid and it'll do you good. And the son says, Yeah, Dad, you went as a kid and look what good it did you now. That's a question we often ask. Why do we gather to worship? What, what good does it do us? Now, during this series of worship, we will eventually get to that very pragmatic question. What is the, the purpose of worship? What, what do we receive as we worship? But during this series of thinking about worship, I want us to think about the fact that God has made us as worshiping beings. We will worship. Worship comes natural to humanity. So the question is not, will we worship? The answer is yes. The real question is, what or who will we worship? Worship simply means attributing worth or value to something. And to be even more specific, worship deals with giving ultimate value, ultimate worth, giving praise to something. 
There is always one thing in our lives that will take ultimate worth, ultimate value. And the thing that we worship will become the centerpiece of our lives, directing our actions, driving our thoughts, inclining our hearts, either in a way that is good or bad. So this issue of worship is not just a peripheral issue that we can look at as if, well, it's, it may not really be that important. Worship is crucial. As we've begun a search for a new minister of music that will lead us in worship, it's been a chance for me, as well as the search committee, to sit down and to think about worship. Because as we are seeking a person to help us, help lead us in worshiping, to help lead us in singing, we felt like as a committee it was important for us to say, well, what guides us in worship? Now, to that end, if you have your bulletin, I want to direct you to please look at the very back page of it. In fact, this is going to be up on the screens if you don't have a copy of it. But this is a brief paragraph on a theology of worship that we are using as we begin talking with potential candidates. Now, this is a very condensed version of a, a page, page and a half document that is available to you if you want to dive in a little bit more. But I wanted us to walk through this because as a congregation, it is my belief, this will guide us in worship. Christian worship is ascribing God the glory due Him because of His character and acts. God is the only being worthy of our worship since He is the creator, sustainer, and sovereign of the universe. Jesus came to reconcile fallen humanity to God through His death and resurrection. Therefore, all worship will have a Christ-centered focus since Jesus is our great high priest and mediator. Christians are enabled to worship as the Holy Spirit quickens hearts and minds to the recognition and confession of Jesus as Lord. Now you notice in that statement it's Trinitarian. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That in many ways is a reflection of this passage that is found here in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14. You'll notice that as we read through this in just a moment, that every part of member of the Trinity comes to the forefront in one way or another. So follow with me as I read this text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Would you bow with me in prayer once again? Gracious Lord, thank You for being merciful to us. Thank You, Lord, for the promise that You are here among us today, dwelling in this place dwelling within us. And Father, we state clearly, we have gathered this morning to worship you. We have already worshipped in the singing of songs glorifying Christ. We have worshipped in the reading of scripture and in prayer. Now, Father, we worship during this time of proclamation. So, Lord, incline our hearts towards you. We confess that we are guilty of simply going through the motions when it comes to worship. So, Father, would you please change our hearts? Grant that this morning we will worship you with all of our being, heart, mind, soul, and strength, and bring glory and honor to your name. For it is in your name that we pray. Amen. There is a comfort level that we reach when it comes to corporate worship. For those that have grown up in church, we often think of a way that worship ought to be. And usually it reflects the pattern that we grew up with, a certain rhythm and a way that worship ought to be. Well, the particular style of worship may take many forms. Certainly when you look at music, there are songs that are fast-paced, songs that are slower, songs that are directed directly to God, songs that speak to one another. But there are some fundamental truths that should guide us in worship, no matter what the particular style of worship should be. These are the why of worship. Why do we worship God? The why is the foundation upon which we build. And this foundation of thinking about why we worship is not just about what takes place here on Sunday mornings. The why of worship will impact the way that you and I live. Because as believers we recognize that the call to worship is not just about one hour on Sunday mornings. The call of worship is about how you and I live our lives. And when we understand the why of worship, it will direct us to live differently. If you're familiar with football at the University of Tennessee, you'll know that before the players take the field, they will recite seven maxims that were made famous by General Robert Nayland. General Nayland was the famed coach of the volunteers in the early part of the 20th century. 
And these are, are maxims or truths about this game, this sport, that are drilled into the players. The second maxim is this. Play for make the, and make the breaks, and when one comes your way, score. Play for those opportunities. Austin Schofner was an offensive lineman who played under General Nayland in 1937. When World War II broke out, he was drafted into the Marine Corps and he served this nation in the South Pacific. He was captured, survived the Bataan Death March, and has the unique distinction of being the leader of the only group that escaped from a Japanese prison camp. When interviewed later about how he led this escape, he said that maxim number two continually went through his mind. Play for the breaks, and when they come, score. So he said that idea was in his mind when he saw the opportunity. Now understand, this is the point I'm making. That truth applied in one setting impacted a man's life so that he was able to pursue freedom. The truths of worship will operate the same way. When we understand these foundational truths about why we worship, it will impact not just the way you and I approach this hour on Sunday morning. It will direct and determine and transform the way you and I approach every day. Now this passage in Ephesians 1, 3-14 is a theologically rich and deep well of truth. If you read it in the original language, it's one sentence. I've often joked that Paul was an incredible theologian, but a horrible, horrible grammar, uh, grammatician. He would have flunked freshman English. But my goodness, what a sentence. We could camp out in this sentence all year. And I don't say that as an exaggeration. From these verses, we could do a study in theology proper about God. We could study Christology. We could study pneumatology, soteriology, ecclesiology, and even eschatology. But today I want us to focus on worship. Because worship guides this passage from beginning to end. Notice how it begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word blessed is a worship word. It means to give praise to. It reflects that which is praiseworthy. So he starts this letter by saying, Blessed be or praise be given to God. Now remember, praise is given to that which is of extreme worth. So he is saying at the beginning of this letter that God is the being of extreme or supreme worth. But he doesn't stop there. Worship is is woven throughout this passage like a golden thread. Look, if you will, down to verse 6. Notice how verse 6 begins. To the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise. That's a worship word. Look down to verse 12, if you will. So that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be what? To the praise of His glory. Worship. Look down to verse 14. Who is the guarantee, talking about the Spirit, 
of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. What? To the praise of His glory. So you have this one sentence, verses 3 through 14, dealing with worship from beginning to end. And in the middle of it, everything comes back to the praise of His glory. Now, this passage deals with not just God's character, His mercy and His grace. Indeed, it says, to the praise of His glorious grace. That is His character. But this passage also deals with His actions in redeeming us. So notice, that's where our first statement in our theology of worship begins. Christian worship is ascribing God the glory due Him. Why? Because of who He is and what He has done. God's actions and characters motivate us to recognize Him as the supreme worth, the supreme value of the universe. And because they reveal Him and for who He is, it draws us to worship Him. You see, as I said earlier, we are worshiping beings. Our lives get off track when we give worth to the wrong Things. God warns about idolatry. Now, idolatry is simply giving worth and value to the wrong things. I heard this definition of idolatry. Idolatry is taking a good thing and making it the ultimate thing, which is a bad thing. Worship, the worship of God, brings us to come back to the fact that God is the only being worthy of our supreme devotion. Tim Keller put it like this. Worship is pulling our affections off our idols and putting them on God. That's one of the reasons, just one of the reasons why corporate worship is so important. As we gather here with other believers, we are reminded that God is of supreme worth. And if that were not enough, just coming together and feeling the synergy as you and I focus on who He is, there are four reasons given in this, this verse, this passage, as to why God is the only one we should worship. The first is this. God has given us every spiritual blessing. This is found in verse 3. Worship be to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Now notice the very first word blessed is really an adjective. It's saying this is an attribute of who God is, this one giving Him praise. But who has blessed takes on a verb form. What that means is blessing is this, a generous gift given to promote the livelihood of the recipient. So when it says that He has blessed us in Christ, that word blessed is that God has given us everything we need for life in Jesus. Peter echoes this in the book of 2 Peter when he says that God has given you and I everything that we need for godliness and life. Everything that you and I need to truly experience the life that God intends for us has been given us in Jesus. Notice that is where the spiritual blessings are found. 
who has blessed us in Christ. We cannot have these blessings, everything that we need in life, apart from Christ. They're in Him. And notice that He says, every spiritual blessing. There is nothing lacking in what God has given us for life. Our problem is, is we become convinced that we need something else. And we forget that God has already supplied everything we need. One of the running jokes at the Herod household is this. Whenever we go to the store, which is usually about four or five times a week, we'll always say, be sure to get cornbread. Because for some reason, and, and I do a lot of the grocery shopping now, not all of it, but a lot, lot of it, I would come back with these packs of cornbread. I don't know why. And we would look in the pantry and say, why did I get cornbread? We've got 10 packets of it already. I was buying what we already had. Isn't that what we do in life? We get convinced that the life we want, the joy we are seeking, it's found if I get this. Or it'll be found if I go do this. When God is saying, it's already in the pantry. You already have it. How? In Christ. He has given everything that we need. So the question we need to ask is, why are we searching for what God has already given us? Is that not the blindness of idolatry? Now you notice that it's described as spiritual blessing. That word spiritual is a word that directs us toward the root of these blessings. These are blessings of the Spirit. Not material things. Now, God may or may not bless with material things. But here's the truth. Material things can be taken away. Blessings that come from the Spirit remain. We start thinking about the fruit of the Spirit. Peace, patience, love, joy, self-control, love. Those things remain no matter what our circumstances are. That's why the reality is that there are some people that are in prison that are more free than many of us out here. Because they recognize because of faith in Christ, they have something in their heart that cannot be taken away. He has given us everything from the Spirit that we need for life. And notice, notice this next descriptive. In the heavenly places. What's being emphasized is the security of these blessings. In heavenly places is a favorite phrase of Paul in the book of Ephesians. He uses it five times as a matter of fact. Heavenly places speaks of the abode of God. He is saying that these blessings that he's given you and me in Christ cannot be taken away. Why? They're in heavenly places. That's the origin of them. That's why there is a security and why God is to be blessed because He has given us everything we need for life in Christ and the Spirit. That's the first one. The second one is found in verses 4 through 6. And once again, I recognize I'm skipping over a lot in this passage, but I must to be focused on this issue of worship. The second foundational truth for worship is this God has adopted you 
you are his child by faith in Christ. Now there are words in verse 4 and 5 that tend to get us off track. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption. We get hung up on those words chose and predestined because we can't wrap our minds around that. We can't understand how does these, things, these truths work with our ability to choose. But notice that Paul doesn't stop to explain them. He simply uses them in the context of worship. And they fit well with the primary point, which is found in verse 5. What has God chosen and predestined us for? Adoption. Now, those words that speak of the sovereignty of God and salvation fit with the image of adoption. In the adoption process, who chooses to initiate adoption? Is it the child or the prospective parents? Now the child may wish and want, but ultimately it is the prospective parent who initiates the act of adoption. That's what Paul's emphasizing. He is saying, were it not for the grace of God, you and I would not be saved. It rests with Him, so therefore we praise Him. And this language of adoption is often the overlooked description of our salvation. Because notice how he ends in verse 6. He did this according to the purpose of His will. In other words, it was God's action. And He did it, why? To the praise of His glorious grace. So that we will be praising and worshiping because of the grace God has given us. That's because worship at its most foundational level is gratitude. Worship is thanking God for the grace that He has given us because we know we do not deserve salvation. And because of His grace, we have been adopted not just into a relationship of a servant to a master or a, a vassal to a king, but as a child to His parent. Think about the freedom that gives us. And Graham Lotz was reminiscing about the passing of her father. And she can remember that the, the freedom that there was for her. You see, there would be people when, when Billy Graham lived over at Black Mountain that would pull up to the driveway. And because of his fame, there was a, a gate there. And they would hit the intercom and they would say, we were just wondering if Mr. Graham was in, if we could come in and see him. Now, I wouldn't have the audacity to do that, but there are people out there who thought, it's Mr. Graham, I've seen him on TV. And very gently and kindly, the, the person operating it would say, well, Mr. Graham's in, but he's not receiving any visitors today. Thank you for your prayers and support. But when she came, all she had to do was to hit the intercom. It's Ann, I'm coming to see Daddy. And the gate opens. And she can go in and see her dad. That is the freedom of a child. That says, I'm here to see Dad. That's what God has given us. And notice, notice once again where it is. Verse 6. The grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Who's the beloved? Jesus. This redemption and adoption occurs through Christ. So we've already seen two reasons to worship. You and I have been given every spiritual blessing. Everything we need for life. 
We've been adopted by God's grace through Jesus to become a child of God. Now here's the third one. It's verses 7 through 10. In Him we have redemption. Redemption is the third reason to worship. Redemption is an economic term. It means to buy, to purchase freedom. It speaks of the great price paid. You see, the emphasis here is not on the one to whom the price was paid. There have been many false teachings that have gone out that God was paying a price, a ransom to Satan. That's not the case at all. God and Satan are not equals, that God should pay anything to Satan. The focus is that a price had to be paid to meet the demands of justice. That's the idea of propitiation. You see, God is a just God. And because you and I have rebelled against Him, because He is just, a penalty must be paid for the crime. And that penalty is death. But Jesus paid the penalty. He paid the price for our sins. So that God could still be just and say, yes, the sins have been punished. But at the same time, the justifier. Now, look back at the text. Redemption through His blood. Blood is shorthand for His death. So our redemption, in other words, the price paid was his death. Now the next phrase, the forgiveness of our trespasses, fills in the idea of redemption. Forgiveness comes not by God ignoring sin or sweeping it under the rug, but it comes because Jesus has paid the price for my sin and your sin so that you and I can have our slate wiped clean in front of God because Jesus took the penalty. So we can say we are right with God because of what Jesus did upon the cross. Amen. That's the freedom we have as believers. And notice he did this according to the riches of his grace. I love that phrase. How rich is God's grace? Can we exhaust it? There is no end to it. Do you understand what Paul is saying in that one phrase? According to the riches of His grace, he is saying that where sin abounds, grace superabounds. There is no sin so great, no, no rebellion against God so severe that He cannot forgive it. When we say, Lord, be merciful to me, I am a sinner. That God is gracious in forgiving. And notice once again, He does this. Why? To the praise of His glorious grace. Our salvation should pull us to praise and to thank God. Think of it in terms like this. Suppose you were at a, on a, a cruise ship. and For some reason you were looking out over the blue ocean of the Caribbean and you fail. You survive the fall but you're flailing around in the water and somebody throws one of those life rings to you. You grab a hold of it and they pull you on the ship. Now what would you think of a person that after they have been rescued in such a way, shakes off the water and says, 
did you see the way I grabbed that life ring? Did you see the way, did you see the strength in my bicep? Did you see the way I swam to that? Man, that's amazing. I am so glad I was able to save myself by grabbing that life ring. When you look at him and say, you idiot. You should be thanking the person who threw it. Worship is thanking the person who threw us the life ring. It's saying, Lord, I don't deserve this, but you have saved me. Redemption is mine because of Christ. So three foundational reasons for worship. Every spiritual blessing, adoption as sons, redemption, and finally, this is in verses 11 through 14, we have a promised inheritance. I draw your attention specifically to verse 14. God has given us the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So you see, God the Father designs salvation and acts it through the Son and guarantees it through the Spirit. This is a Trinitarian statement as to our salvation and salvation under the umbrella of worship. The idea of the inheritance is that there is something better that awaits there is the promise of a better and brighter future and the spirit is the guarantee of that now that tells me this the spirit is not just the guarantee that there is a place that we'll get to a place called heaven the spirit is the guarantee that we will know God more fully because the spirit is God himself Dwelling within us, giving you and I a little taste of who God is with the promise that in glory we will experience Him exponentially more than we could ever imagine. So we worship God because of the guarantee that our salvation will come to its completion when we stand before Him. This world is not all there is. So there are four key words that serve as the foundation for worship. Spiritual blessing, adoption, redemption, inheritance. Something better that awaits. Now here's the question that I want to conclude with. Do we worship like those who have been redeemed? Does our corporate time of worship reflect that we have been blessed, adopted, redeemed, and promised an inheritance? Does gratitude characterize our time of worship? Is there a sense of joy? Because I promise you, where there is gratitude, there is joy. That's why joyless people are people who are thankless. But a people who are grateful are joyful. The two go hand in hand. So it's with that question that I leave you with this morning as we conclude this time of worship through proclamation. Do you worship like a person that has been redeemed? 
one of the things that I've heard people say is there are times in worship where a song has touched them or there's a truth that we're singing about where they say, man, I just I want to lift up my hand and praise God, but I just, I just don't. Why not? Why not? God has redeemed us, adopted us, blessed us, and promised us more. Let's worship Him in accord with that. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me now, if you will. During this time of invitation, the Holy Spirit may have been speaking to your heart that you really don't know what it means to be adopted as a child of God, to be redeemed. And you're recognizing that you need a Savior. So this morning I ask you, if you need to respond in that way, when we begin singing, just to come down your row, walk down this aisle, and I'll be glad to speak with you. And even, even after this service is over, to talk with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Many of you have been followers of Christ for a long time. But as we turn our thoughts toward worship, the Holy Spirit may be speaking to you about some idols that have come into your life. Things that are good, they're not, not wrong. But they've taken on, taken on an inordinate level of value in your life. And today the Lord may be calling you to make an adjustment put things in their proper place by putting him in first place this altar is open for you to come and pray if you'd like Heavenly Father thank you for giving us every spiritual blessing everyone in Christ thank you Father for adopting us thank you Father for redeeming us and thank you, Father, for the inheritance that awaits us. And that inheritance is you. Thank you, Lord, that this world is not the final chapter. So, Father, we worship you this morning for all these reasons and more. For you alone are worthy of our worship. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let's stand together. And if you need to respond, please come.